Well, hey, good morning, 9 o'clock. How are we doing? Good. Hey, it is a Sunday morning in mid-January, and there's no snow on the ground and the sun is shining. What do we have to complain about, right? God is good. Hey, do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, open them up to John 2. We are going to be in John 2. We have people coming down the aisles right now who will get you a Bible if you don't have one. And if you don't own a Bible, please take that as our gift. We'd love for you to keep it. But just raise your hand and we'll get a copy of God's Word to you. We are in John chapter 2. A lot to get after. But before we jump into the text, um, I do want to take a moment and say... um, We did a ministry highlight early in the service, and Pastor Jake, the leader of our 20s ministry, kind of came up and shared what was going on in our 20s ministry. Can you guys just hear from me really quick? Um, I am so impressed with Jake and his wife, Leah, and his combination of just kindness and wisdom and intelligence and a heart for young people is truly phenomenal. And I would just encourage you, if you're in that age range and not plugged in, or if you know someone who needs to get plugged into a 20 small group, do it. Um, What God is doing in that ministry is really incredible. It's one of the things that we're so excited about at Harvest. They're just the best. All right, let's do this. I want to start with a little survey. I'm going to need your help. I'm going to need you to participate, or I'm going to feel really dumb up here. Here's what I need you to do. I'm going to ask you a question. I need you to identify with one of these two things. How many of you in this room, raise your hand, if you would define yourself as a little bit more laid back, anti-confrontational, don't like tension, don't like drama, would tend to like not deal with things rather than run into conflict? How many of you would say that that's you? Raise them up, raise them high, raise them proud. Like, I don't even like doing this, right? Stop being weird, just raise your hand. Um, Okay. How many of us would say that, no, I'm a little bit more intense, confrontational, I'm direct, I like to deal with things, and the anti-confrontational people in my life drive me nuts? Who's like that? Yeah, you guys rose those fast. So again, it was the same thing last night. It's about two-thirds anti-confrontational, one-third confrontational. And I would say that I am in the latter group. I tend to be a little bit more direct. And um, people have said that I can just kind of run with my base level intensities higher than most people. In fact, when Mary and I were first dating and then when we first got married, one of the things that we had to work through was on a scale of one to 10, my two out of, int- out of 10 intensity was Mary's eight out of 10 intensity. So we'd be hanging out and we'd just be talking about something and I wouldn't even think that there was an issue we're fighting. And all of a sudden Mary would clam up and she's like, Cal, why are you getting so intense? And I'm like, babe, I'm hardly awake right now. This is me rolling out of bed. Like, I don't know how to dial this down a whole lot more. And thankfully, the Lord has grown both of us in that. But um, it's not bad, right, one or the other, right or wrong. It's a difference of wiring. Well, what's cool about this morning is we're going to see in John 2, you have to remember, John is Jesus' best friend. And he is writing to show us, I want you to see who Jesus truly is. And he's going to give us two stories back to back of Jesus at polar opposite. One, he's quiet and laid back and reserved. The other one, he's very confrontational. And what's cool about this morning is no matter which side of the coin you fall on, no matter which one you raised your hand for, there's going to be parts of Jesus today that you really resonate with. And there's going to be parts that make you a little bit uncomfortable. So I think the Lord has a lot to say to us, no matter how we are wired this morning. So let's look at John 2, starting at verse 1. I'm going to look at the first story. And to follow along, I'm going to read through verse 12. It says this, it says, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. 
and the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. But his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted, the water had now become wine. And he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and he stayed there for a few days. All right, so here's what's going on in this story. Jesus is invited to a wedding with his friends. He's at kind of his hometown in Galilee around where he grew up, and he's just there at a party with his friends. It's not his wedding. He's not in charge of the wedding. He's not performing the wedding. It's just like a Friday night for him, and he is with his buddies at a party. He is off the clock. And the party runs into a problem. They've run out of wine to drink. And so Mary, Jesus' mom, comes to Jesus, and she's like, hey, we have a problem. I think you might be able to solve it. And Jesus says to her, look at it in verse 4. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. I'm just, you need to know um, in verse four, the word woman there, it's actually an endearing, affectionate term. It's not like, hey, woman, where's dinner, right? I wouldn't suggest trying that. That doesn't go well. Usually that's not what Jesus is doing. He's not being rude or dismissive. He's actually referring to her in an affectionate way. But he says like, mom, this isn't my problem. This isn't my party. It's not my time to start revealing myself in the miraculous way. Like, why are you bothering me about this? But then look at verse five. I love this. It says, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Right? This is such a mom move. Right? Mom's like, Jesus, can you fix this? Jesus is like, mom, this isn't my problem. And then you can see her just kind of wink at the servants and be like, hey, just do what he tells you to. Like she's totally like putting the pressure on and then walking away. Do me a favor, turn to your neighbor and just say moms are the best. <laughs> right, moms are the best and she is totally being a mom right now. And here's what I love about verse five. Um, this is the first miracle we see Jesus do in scripture. But what's amazing is, is what does Mary know that we don't? Like she is so sure in this moment that Jesus can do the miraculous and solve this problem. And none of the disciples, no one had ever seen him in his public ministry do any miracles. But like Mary's convinced, hey, I've got a problem. I'm bringing it to Jesus and I'm trusting him to solve it. What a great model for us to live our lives, huh? I've got a problem. I'm trusting Jesus can solve it. I'm going to leave him with the details. All right, so guess what happens? Jesus does solve the problem. He has the servants fill the six jars with water. He miraculously turns it to wine. The wedding is saved. And the story ends with the master of the ceremony being like, this is the best wine. Like usually you drink the good wine first and then you bring out the bad wine. He's like, you've done it the opposite. What Jesus made was better than anything else. Cool story, huh? So here's the question, what does this teach us about Jesus? What is John trying to communicate to us? Well, let's look at Jesus at the wedding. Um, Here's one thing we see about Jesus at this wedding. He's reserved and quiet. Do you notice that? Like he doesn't want to be the center of attention. 
Mom comes to him and is like, hey, Jesus, we've got a problem. I know you can fix it. And Jesus is like, hey, mom, it's not my thing. It's not my problem. It's not even my time. He doesn't want to enter into the forefront of this wedding. He doesn't want to take any of the attention. Even at the end of the wedding, no one knows that it was Jesus that turned the water into the wine. It says only the servants knew, but the bride and the groom and the master, like, where did this incredible wine come from? He does the miracle in secret. And what's really, really cool, it says that like, this was a secret between him and the servants. And one of the things I love about Jesus is he's really good at noticing the people that no one else seems to notice. At that wedding, no one would have been concerned about the servants. They were there to serve the guests and to serve the groom and the bride and the master. And Jesus is like, hey, this first miracle, this is gonna be between you and me. I'm not gonna tell anyone else. You can play dumb, but you know what happened. We see Jesus do this often in his ministry. There's a time where he's arguing with the Pharisees and he's in a heated discussion. And all of a sudden out of the corner of his eye, he sees a widow put a mite into the offering. Now a mite is the equivalent of like a penny. It was very, very low value as far as economic terms. But he's like, look at her great faith. She's giving all that she has. When no one else saw it, when no one else would have noticed her gift, Jesus noticed it. Right, Jesus would often, when he was preaching, call the children to him. Right, the children were just seen as nuisances. They were often kept away from the big crowds. And they're like, we don't want the kids to bother you, Jesus. Like, no, I see them and I love them and I want them near me. I think oftentimes we wonder in our life, does anyone see what I'm going through? Does anyone notice me? I feel all alone. Listen, no matter how you come in here today, Jesus pays attention. He sees. So cool about Jesus. Okay, here's the second thing we see. Um, Jesus is filled with compassion. All right, church, can I ask the question, at the end of the day, what is the most simple explanation for why Jesus turned water into wine? Do you know what it is? It's because he loved his mama. Like, it's that simple. Jesus is a mama's boy in the best sense of the word. His mom came to him, and he's like, I've got this problem. Will you help me? And he was filled with compassion. And even though he's like, it's not my problem, I didn't create it, and it's not my time, I will show compassion on you, and I will help you because I love you. You know, it's interesting. Um, Joseph, Jesus' father, um, he is there at the birth story. And then he's even there when Jesus is a young child and, and at the temple. But by the time Jesus starts his public ministry, Joseph is gone. And most commentators, most people believe that Joseph had passed away. Now, here's the truth. We don't know if he died when Jesus was 14 or 19 or 22 or 24 or 28 or 30. But we know that at the age of 30, when he started his public ministry, his dad was no longer in the picture. And I want you to know, Jesus loved and cared for his mother. Even at the end of Jesus's life, when he is on the cross, he looks at John, his best friend, who's writing this book. And he goes, John, you're her son now. You need to take care of her. Even as he's dying for the sin of the world, he's thinking about who's going to watch out for my mom. You know, we did a Ten Commandments series this fall, and one of the commandments was you should honor your father and mother. Jesus honored his mother and was filled with compassion for her. Jesus also had compassion on the couple that was getting married. He's like, I don't want this party to be a bummer. I don't want their marriage to start. Look how they disappointed everyone because they made a mistake and ran out of wine. He is showing compassion on others. He's just being kind and gracious. Okay, here's the third thing he's doing. He's building the disciples' faith. Look at verse 11. See what he says? 
Uh, he says, this is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and the disciples believed in him. So Jesus is using this opportunity to be like, I can do this miracle, and it's going to help my disciples. These were guys who were new to Jesus. They had left their jobs and their families and their comfort to follow him as Messiah. And Jesus is like, you know what? Things are going to get difficult. It's going to get harder for these men. And I'm going to love them and show them that they haven't made a mistake. That I am Lord and I am Messiah. He's using this to build his disciples' faith. He's thinking of them. And then the fourth thing we see in this story is very, very simple. Jesus is the hero, isn't he? Like, if this is the only thing you knew about Jesus, you'd be like, Jesus is the best. There's no reason not to like Jesus. He comes in, he's the knight in shining armor, he saves the day. He saved the party, he saved the reputation of the couple, he's loving people, he's meeting their needs. And John's saying, listen, this is who Jesus was. This was his heart. This is how much he loved people. This is one side to Jesus. All right, now let's go to the next story. Look at verse 13. It says this, it says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple, he found those who were selling auctions and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show for us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. All right? So this is obviously a very different side to Jesus. Jesus goes into the temple in Jerusalem. He sees money changers there, and he gets angry. A couple things we see about Jesus at the temple. Rather than being quiet and reserved, he's loud and public. Right? He goes into the temple. He makes a whip. He drives out the animals. He tells the workers to get out of there. He overturns the table, and he is starting a fight with the religious leaders. He's loudly engaging with the people. It's like that thing where if you would have been at the temple and you would have seen this, there would have been that awkward silence that happens when someone freaks out. Where it's like, man, that person's really mad. What's going on? This isn't normal. He is loud in public. The second thing is he's confrontative and direct, right? At the wedding at Cana, he did the miracle in a way where he wouldn't get the credit for it. Here, there's no doubt at all how Jesus feels. He's inserting himself into the center of this issue. And as I read this story, what's interesting to me, it's like, man, you know Jesus could have gotten Peter to do this, right? Like Peter was world-renowned for doing dumb things. He could have said, hey, go Peter, go in there and be a bulldog and flip stuff over. And Jesus could have done it in a way where it would have accomplished what he wanted, but he wouldn't have had to be the bad guy. Jesus doesn't do that. He's like, I'm making a stand. I am not going to allow this to happen. And I'm going to be the one who, who engages in this issue. You know, it's funny, most of the time, when Jesus would get in fights with the Pharisees, the Pharisees were the ones starting it. They would ask him difficult questions or they would try to trap him or they would make accusations. Here, it's the opposite. These money changers, these people in the temple, they're just doing what they've done every single day. 
And now Jesus is messing with their life and he's yelling at them and he is definitely making enemies on purpose. Third thing we see is that in this story, the disciples are in the dark, aren't they? Right, so at the wedding at Cana, he's doing it to help build the disciples' faith. Here, the disciples aren't warned about what's going to happen. It's not a teaching moment for the disciples. They don't know what's going on. Look at verse 22. It says, when therefore he was raised from the dead, the disciples remember that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus is like, hey, um, I'm gonna tear this whole place down. And the Pharisees are like, what are you talking about? He goes, listen, if you tear this down, I'll rebuild it in three days. And they're like, it's a big temple. You cannot rebuild this in three days. Jesus is talking about his death and resurrection. He's giving a prophecy. He's speaking about himself, but he never explains this to the disciples. It says they don't, they don't put it together until after Jesus raises from the dead. They're like, oh, now I get what he was talking about in the temple. I was so confused. Here's the point. He's not trying to bring the disciples along with him in this moment. This isn't a teaching moment. He's not using this as like a, hey, let me like explain to you what I'm doing. He's just acting. And then rather than being the hero like he was at the wedding, um, he's being a troublemaker right? He's not swooping in to save the day. If you would have been at the temple just coming to worship without any context for who Jesus was, you would have been like, this is a crazy person. Like this guy needs to be arrested. He's making a scene. He's causing trouble. This was a moment where he is being purposefully polarizing. And there would have been some people who would have left that temple being like, that guy is a problem. And he is entering right into that. So let me ask you this. Have I done a good enough job making the point clear that John is showing us two very different sides of Jesus? Am I accomplishing that? If, if I am, say crystal. Okay, good. I'm doing my job. Two Jesuses, very, very different pictures of who he is. So here's the question, why? All of this is good. These are good stories. But what is, Je what is John, through the power of the Holy Spirit, trying to teach us by giving us these two stories back to back. Like John's doing this for a reason. What, what do we need to take from this? What do we need to apply for our lives? So here are four lessons we learn from these two stories. Here's the first. Um, we don't get to parse Jesus. We don't get to parse Jesus. We don't get to separate who he is and accept some and reject the other. All right, I need your help again. If at the beginning of the message, I had you raise your hand if you were kind of laid back, anti-confrontational. Can you put your hands back up if you raise your hand like that's me? All right, raise them up high. All right, I'm gonna ask you a question and I need you, nope, keep your hands up. I, I need you to, to hang with me. Keep your hands up now. If the Jesus that you have in your mind when you think of Jesus tends to be more like the Jesus at the wedding than the one at the temple. All right, thanks. Isn't that amazing? Almost everyone who says, I'm more laid back, I'm not super confrontational, I tend to be more gracious. When we think of Jesus, we think of him like that. And here's why. Because I think there's this natural tendency to try to create or think of Jesus in a way that's after our own image. We think that Jesus was probably just a way better version of us, but he was probably wired a lot like we were we try to create a Jesus that makes us comfortable. Do you know we even do this with how he looks? Throw up the next slide. All right, you see these two pictures? Um, these are artist renderings of Jesus. 
You see the one where he's got the long flowing blonde hair and the blue eyes? That tends to be how Americans think of Jesus, especially white Dutch Americans. And uh, I've heard it said that the odds of Jesus having blonde hair and blue eyes is about the same odds as finding Bigfoot riding a unicorn. Like you would not have found it in the Middle East back then. He was not blonde. He did not have blue eyes. In fact, the other picture I think is really cool because what's happened is scientists and archaeologists, they've done a lot of research and taken early photos or early drawings and kind of taken what would people look like, the average person look like in that region. And they've given what they believe is the most accurate guess of what Jesus might have looked like. Very, very different from the Jesus that we grew up with in our storybook Bibles, right? You know why? Because the author's like, let's create a Jesus that's easier for us to relate to. Let's have one that makes us more comfortable. This is a natural tendency we have. Here's what I'm getting at, and I need you to hear me. Jesus, when he's in the temple, he is just as holy. He is just as righteous. He is just as perfect. He is just as loving and worth following as the one who is at the wedding. We can't say, man, I like these things about Jesus, but these parts make me uncomfortable, so I'm not going to follow him in these areas or these ways. The same Jesus that healed the blind man called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. The same Jesus that said, let the little children come to me, told Peter, get behind me, Satan. The same Jesus that stood up for the woman caught in adultery when no one else would, told that woman, go and sin no more. You need to change your life. You've got to stop doing this. This doesn't honor the Lord. We don't get to pick and choose which Jesus we follow. And so here's what I would say to help you really, really practically. I told you at the beginning of the message, I tend to be wired more on the intense side of things. I don't mind being direct. That means for my heart, practically, I've got to get the gracious, compassionate Jesus in front of my face more often. And I've got to say, man, look at how he loved people. Look at how he was patient. Look at how he... um, got out of the way sometimes. And if you tend to be maybe a little bit more anti-confrontational, maybe you need to be like, man, Jesus was bold and he stood for truth and he understood that not everyone was going to like him all of the time. We need to get the whole picture of Jesus. Here's the second thing John is doing. Um, He's giving us a model for righteous anger. Right? When Jesus is at the temple, Jesus is teaching us how to be angry in a way that honors the Lord. Ephesians 4.26 says, be angry, but do not sin. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And again, look at me. Give me your eyes here. Some of you need to hear this. Anger and intensity are not sin in themselves. It's not sinful to be direct. It's not sinful to sometimes raise the temperature of a room. It's not comfortable. We don't like it. No one really chooses to want to have those type of conversations. But just because someone is intense doesn't make it wrong, right? The temple, when Jesus enters there, it's being used as a place where people are getting scammed out of their money. What would happen is is people would come there to give sacrifices. They couldn't afford to travel with animals. So the temple would provide animals at very, very high prices. The, The religious leaders were making money off of it. And Jesus is mad and he had every right to be angry. Jesus is really mad. But look at verse 16. Look at what Jesus actually says. He says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Okay, a couple things I want you to notice. Everything he said there was true. 
Just because he's mad, he didn't exaggerate. He didn't lie. Everything he said was rooted in truth. He didn't stretch the truth because he was angry. Here's another thing you need to see. He attacked the problem, not the person. He didn't call names. He didn't belittle people. He didn't call people dumb. He didn't call people crooks. He, he, he attacked the problem. What you're doing is wrong. Get these things out of my father's house. This isn't appropriate. So even in his anger, he's using his words to deal with the issue, not to slice up the people who were in the wrong. And then the third thing is, is he never lost control. He didn't curse. He didn't blow up. He didn't say anything that he regretted. Like he was mad, but if you looked at what he said, it was very, very in control, true and right. He didn't let his anger be an excuse to lose control and use his words as a weapon. All right, so if you were here last week, I talked about this idea that part of loving and worshiping Jesus is that we as followers of Christ, we have to live with this filter that says, man, am I honoring the Lord in what I do? So when I go to work, I'm not just thinking about me, but I'm thinking about am how I working with others and how I spend my time and interact with my coworkers, am I bringing glory to Jesus? Am I honoring him? And in my marriage and with my kids, all right? Too many of us, church, when we get angry, we just set that filter down, don't we? And honoring and worshiping the Lord doesn't become a priority. And when we get angry, we lose control. And the only thing we care about is how much pain and damage can I inflict in the quickest amount of time. And we use 100% words and we call names and we say the most hurtful thing we can because we're mad and we've lost control. And listen, that does not honor the Lord. It's making a mockery of your relationship with God rather than honoring him in the difficult spaces. Jesus never did that. We can't either. Us being angry, even if it's rightfully so, is not an excuse to lose control and to remove that filter. If you understand me, say, I get it. You know, James calls our tongue, he says it's a flame that can start a forest fire. And listen, in however long I've served in ministry, I have seen lives and relationships destroyed because in a moment filled with anger, things were said that you can't unhear. Jesus never did that. He never lost control. John is saying when Jesus was angry, he still didn't sin. He still honored the Lord in what he said. There's a lot for us to learn there. Here's the third thing, and I love this one. John is showing us a model where Jesus is privately gracious and publicly truthful. He's privately gracious and publicly truthful. It's interesting. The story where Jesus is the hero, he chooses not to be. He chooses not to make himself the center of attention. He chooses not to be like, hey, look what I did. Look how amazing I am. He chooses not to get the glory. And in fact, he would do this often in his ministry. He would uh, heal a group of lepers and he would say, you know what, just go to the temple and clean yourself. Don't tell anyone it was me. He would feed a group of people and they would want to make him king and he would run away to get away from that because he didn't want his ministry based off of the miraculous by itself. He was privately choosing not to get the credit. And what's interesting is, is it's so opposite of how we live most of the time, isn't it? Like we live in such a self-promotion culture, don't we? 
Like we are trained. Like, you know, you can go online and there are companies that will train you how to self-promote yourself more effectively in social media. Like it's an industry. And even our pictures we take and things we post, we put filters on us to make it look like we don't live in Michigan in January, right? You all look more tan online than you do in person, right? And it's filters, it's self-promotion, it's making us look good. I was in Chicago a couple of weekends ago with my son for his birthday and we were walking along Michigan Avenue. And uh, it was just busy streets. It was a holiday weekend. Every, like, everyone's waiting for crosswalks. It's really, really jam-packed. And all of a sudden, I walk by this woman walking this way. She's a young girl. She's in her early 20s. And she's got one of those like eight-foot-long selfie sticks. And she's just walking through the street, doing poses, smiling. She's live or she's doing something. And I'm like, listen, if you're by the you know, Eiffel Tower, I get it. That's really cool. If you're at the Colosseum in Rome, take a picture. If you're at the Leaning Tower of Pisa, great. So you're out by the Walgreens on Michigan Avenue. No one thinks this is cool, right? Like everyone's miserable because she's holding everything up. But it's, look, how, look where I am. Look what I'm doing. Look how good I look. Jesus rejected that. When he was gracious, when he could, he did it in secret. He talks about this in Matthew 6 when he teaches. He says this. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, let not your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and that your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Isn't that amazing? He's like, don't be a hypocrite. If you're being kind and gracious just to get the credit from others... That's the only reward you're going to get. But if you do it in a way that's genuine and honors the Lord and it's not about building up you, your father's going to see it and he's going to bless you in a way that's way better. Okay, he was privately gracious, but he was also bold about the truth. Nobody had any question about where Jesus stood. He was willing to lose friends for what was right. He was willing for people not to like him because he wouldn't sit back and let wrongs go. So here's a couple questions I have. Do the people in your life, do they know that you're going to stand for what's right? Or do we oftentimes punt on what's right and we get quiet because we don't want conflict, we don't want others to think poorly of us? I think there's a million ways that this plays out practically. Here's one that I think is very, very practical that applies to everyone in this room. Um, I hope that we can all get to a place where the people in our lives, whether it be family, coworkers, friends, that they know that we are a no-fly zone when it comes to gossip, right? We live in a world where it's so easy to trash people behind their back. And part of standing for truth is I hope the people in your life are like, hey, I know that when I go to Brad and I want to say something bad about this person, he's like, why are you telling me this? I have no ear for this. This doesn't involve me. If you need my help to make it right, I'm happy to involve myself, but we're not gonna talk bad about this person when he's not there. I don't care about the story. I don't care about the drama. It's not right. And even if that means that you don't have as many people come talking to you to do those things, it's worth it. Do we have a reputation that we're going to stand for truth? The other question I ask is, are there things that are going on in your life that you're doing that are gracious that no one knows about? Are we following this model or do we maybe have it upside down? Okay, here's the fourth thing we see, fourth lesson we learn, is that motives matter. 
Motives matter a lot to Jesus, right? There's that story in the Old Testament where um, Samuel is going to uh, anoint a new king, and he's going to end up anointing David, but first he sees David's older brother, and he's like, oh, this guy's tall, he's handsome, he looks like a king. And God says, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. All right, you know why Jesus got so worked up at the temple? Because he saw the motives of the people that were there. They weren't there to worship. They weren't there to love God. They weren't there to praise him. They were there to profit off of him. They were there to take advantage of people. And listen, it is not lost on me that when Jesus got most angry in the gospels, it was centered around the temple and the church. And that means Jesus cares a lot about what happens in this building. And so we need to, both as pastors and staff and then as members of this church to be like, hey, when we come here, our worship needs to be genuine. Right? It's like what we talked about last week, that we must decrease, he must increase, that when we come, it's like, man, Jesus, I love you, and I'm for you, and there's nothing that I'm hiding, and I'm not being a hypocrite, and I'm not making a mockery of you in how I live. We need to be quick to be humble and repent and have sincere worship because Jesus cares about our heart and motives. I want to close with this uh, closing question. I, I heard this this week, and I'm like, man, this fits so perfect. Here's the question. If God answered every single prayer of yours in 2022, whose kingdom would have grown the most? Even when we come to God in prayer, if God would have said yes to everything we prayed for this last year, would his kingdom have grown or would our kingdom have grown? Now listen, God loves us to share our prayers with him. He hears us. He wants us to come to him with our needs but he's also not a magic genie that we just use him to try to get what we want. Church, look at me. He has already given us more than we could ever have hoped for by giving us his son, Jesus Christ. And what I love about Jesus is he is full of grace and he is full of truth. And regardless of how you come in here, what I love is, is there's things that like, man, I relate to that. And I see that in Jesus and I love that about him. And there's other parts that are like, man, this is difficult for me. But he's with us. He's patient with us. He's making us into his image. And I love this series because we're just going to get a front row seat into who this man was and what he can do in our hearts. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for um, your word. I thank you for this church. I thank you um, that Jesus is someone who's very, very difficult just to put in a box. And he was gracious and generous and filled with compassion. And he was also truthful and brave and bold and confrontative at times. And God, I know that all of us in here would say there's areas of those things that we need to grow in. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your spirit, which convicts us of that. I just pray that even as we close in worship, that our worship, our song would be a genuine sacrifice to you that we would do it with pure motives, that we'd be quick to just repent of our brokenness, repent of when anger gets the best of us, repent of when we make things about us. Help us in that. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.